0: Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, the show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it, and we would not be doing this without you. So thank you so, 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 so much for listening. And in case you don't know, I'm your host, Tess.
1: And I'm John.
0: And I'm Julie. But before we dive into some micro moments, I want to give a special super big thank you to Nails 5561 Your review filled my heart with so much love and joy, so I just want to say thank you for leaving us a review. You're a rock star, and we appreciate your support, always and forever. Now that we have all the feels going, John, you told me some exciting news recently about the microbial world. Can you share a little bit about what you found out in the past week? Was it the last week?
1: Yeah, so... <sighs> The field of microbiome research, at least, and when it comes to the biotech industry, it's been having a little bit of a hard time because there's a lot of companies that have been pouring resources into research, but there hasn't been a product coming out. Well, good news is Therese Therapeutic announced completion of a rolling BLA submission to the FDA for investigational microbiome therapeutic product SER 109 which they're using for recurrent C. diff infections. So BLA is Biologics License Application, and it's a request for permission from the FDA to sell a biological product in interstate commerce.
0: Do you know if this is a single biological, or is it a consortium, or...?
1: It is a consortium of different species. They're all found in the phyla firmicutes, Mm. which is the same phyla as C. diff.
0: As clostridium, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Because usually, firmicutes are not often associated with healthy guts. Right. That's interesting.
1: So these are, and they're found in healthy guts, so they've been seen before and mm-hmm. previous studies. And this uh, may be the first FDA-approved oral microbiome therapeutic if it goes to market.
0: That's so exciting!
1: So yeah, it did pass phase 3 trials And if it does get approved, then there's a potential for it to launch in the first half of 2023.
0: Oh, man, that's so quick.
1: Yeah. And just a little bit more information. So C. diff, recurrent C. diff, there's 170,000 cases in the U.S. annually.
0: Only 170,000? Yeah. Oh, I kind of thought it would be more, like in the millions.
1: Mm, It's not that prevalent. I mean, that's still pretty common. 170,000 cases.
0: Oh, definitely. And it's definitely a serious disease. Yeah. It's just like, I thought it, would, it was a little bit more prevalent.
1: And just as a, uh, another side note so, fecal transplants mm-hmm. and st- stuff like this is aimed at recurrent C. diff infections.
0: Right. We talked a little bit about that in the Travis episode. Right. Just two episodes ago.
1: Two episodes ago.
0: Yeah, if you're wondering, I think it's episode D- tree.
1: Yeah, so usually the first route is antibiotic treatment to treat C. diff, but there's usually a high recurrence of C. diff infections.
0: Because antibiotics clear out all the good and all the bad. Right. And then the bad that linger over can take over because there's nothing to compete against.
1: And C. diff is a pretty hardy bug, too, so there's yeah. not a guarantee that you're always going to get rid of it. Mhm. So that's my news.
0: That's cool. I have a, a bit of news. I like literally just pulled up. I I found maybe 30 seconds before we started recording today. So this is pretty brand new. Um, I believe it was like just published a new scientist as well. So, you know, I haven't really had the time to vet this out, but I thought it was kind of cool. Maybe I'd share it with everybody. And if it's wrong, it's not my fault. I'm trying here. They actually have found ribosomes, which are tiny structures inside cells that often create proteins. Um, Ribosomes are one of the fundamental components of a cell, if you would, most cells have them, they actually found ribosomes that are able to self-replicate outside of a living cell, which has never before been seen before. And they think this could be a really crucial step in sort of understanding the fundamentals of the origin of life itself.
1: Hmm. Yeah, because originally they thought that life started as uh, RNA, right?
0: Yeah, so there's, I mean, definitely different theories out there, whether it's RNA or DNA. But yeah, so it's, it's sort of an interesting thing that they've never seen before. I haven't really had the time to look into it any more than that, but I thought that was kind of exciting. It's not really microbe-related. It's biotech for sure. Well, not even biotech. It probably came from academia. But yeah, it's just sort of an interesting little thing that that popped up on my newsfeed that I thought I would share
1: with people. That is really cool.
0: Yeah. And with that news out of the way, it's, let's jump into some more. For today, we are closing out our segment on the human gut microbiome with the gut bomb. Um, But just so people know, over the course of the summer, we talked a lot about the gut microbiome, human gut microbiome. We talked first doing a little review of a conference that John and I went to and talked about some of the things we learned there. We talked about our own gut microbiomes and our experience with both Zoe and Viome. And then we interviewed a couple leading scientists in the gut microbiome world. So we're going to close it out with some fun and interesting articles that we've recently have come out and that we really think are kind of groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And then we will start a new sort of episode or season, if you will. Um, There will be no break in between, but we will get into what our new focus will be at the end of this episode, but I don't want to ruin for anyone, so if you want to figure out what that is, stick around to the end. But today, we bring you three recent advances in the gut microbiome that really tickled our fancy. Who wants to go fourth? Fourth? No, probably the first person should go first, not fourth. Yeah. Who wants to go First. (laughs)
1: All right, I'll go first. <clears throat> okay, so the title of this paper is The Microbiome Restrains Melanoma Bone Growth by Promoting Intestinal Natural Killer and Th1 Cells Homing to Bone. What? I'll get into it. Okay, okay. So the authors are Subhas Paul, Daniel Perrin, Tetsuya Yamoto, Robert F- Fascio, Andrea Stocia, Jonathan Adams, Craig Coopersmith, Reynolds Jones, M. Neil Weisman, and Roberto Pasifi.
0: Oh, that's so many less authors than my paper had. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been put to work.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, this was published in May 3rd of this year in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. So, when melanoma usually an aggressive form of skin cancer becomes malignant or infectious or spreads. A Wait, com-
0: melanoma can be infectious?
1: Well, it not to other people, it to other parts of the body.
0: So it can spread.
1: Yes. Okay. A common site to spread are the bones. And the gut microbiome have an effect on regulation of immune cells. Though this is not fully understood, but the team is curious if the gut microbiome has an effect on tumor growth. So the team injected melanoma tumor cells, which were expressing luciferase, into mice that either had broad-spectrum antibiotics treatment or a depleted microbiome, or mice that had no treatment. And they found that those that had the depleted microbiome had an accelerated tumor growth and a reduced expansion of intestinal natural killer cells and Th1 cells. So
0: what is a depleted microbiome? Do they go into what they consider a depletion?
1: They're just calling, like, broad-spectrum antibiotics, like, clearing the gut. And they also saw that there was a reduced migration from the gut to the tumor. So natural killer cells are cells that... um are a type of immune cell, and they will attack and kill our own cells. Yeah, buddy. There is a catch, though. Like If the immune system is functioning properly, they only attack tumor cells and cells that have been infected with viruses. And Th1 cells, they're called T helper cells, and they release chemicals that stimulate other cells in the immune system to go after cells. So they'll get to a site, they see a problem, and then they send the signals out to like either activate or recruit other immune cells. So like I said, they injected the mice with these tumor cells, either intracardiac or straight to the bone.
0: What is intracardiac? Like through the heart?
1: Yeah. And they took measurements depending on where they did it on 5, 10, and 13 or 15 days. And they measured the size by luminescence. The luciferase tumors. But they used CT scanning on all these mice.
0: Which you can use on mice, but we learned you cannot use on a manatee.
1: Oh, yeah. We did. <laughs> that random show on Disney+. Plus. Manatees too heavy to get into Manatees the CT are, machine.
0: are too heavy and too big for the CT machine. <laughs> X-rays only for those beasts.
1: So, anyway, the CT showed tumor growth perforation of the bone and growth outside the bone, those mice that had the microbiome cleared gut had worse outcome. So they had larger tumor cells. They also saw more tumor cells escaping the bone and growing over the bone than those that had an intact microbiome.
0: Yeah, microbiome for the win.
1: They also wondered if the effect was due to uh, some effect by antibiotics uh because they gave them broad spectrum antibiotics i'm wondering like if the mice are absorbing these antibiotics are those antibiotics somehow having an effect in the body that they're not seeing
0: oh well, that's a good point
1: so they treated with different antibiotics that couldn't be absorbed but the effect was still seen so how do they know it wasn't absorbed they selected for specific antibiotics that were unable to be absorbed by the mouse body ah uh. so when they were looking at the immune cells Those that received antibiotic treatment showed less of the natural killer and Th1 cells in the intestines. So there's a lot of immune cells in the intestines all the time. They're usually sampling the the microbes that are in the gut. If you have a quote-unquote healthy gut microbiome, they're not overreacting. They're kind of – there's a stasis going on. And they've also shown that the gut helps train some of our immune cells as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So, those that had a cleared gut or that antibiotic treatment, they had less of these cells, and less of these cells migrated to the bone marrow where the tumors were. So, this is this part of the paper I was like past me in understanding. But so, I believe that they were trying to elude a reason why the lack of microbiome was doing this. And what they did is they used different chemicals to block uh, chemokines or chemicals that attract the movement of the white blood cells, as well as, uh, chemicals that blocked receptors, which prevented the immune cells from moving into the tumor site. Uh, there's these specific, like they call them ligands that the cells will adhere to and allows them to go in. So they did all these tests with these different chemicals. They prevented the movement to the tumor and they also were able to prevent, the cells from going into the bone marrow. They did this through, like I said, either chemicals to block it. They even had knockout mice. These were these mice were bred to and lacked that little ligand for the immune cells to latch onto. And so they were able to see results very similar to antibiotic treatment mice. I don't believe this really shows that the mechanism of the gut microbiome affects the immune system this way. I don't know how they would be able to do this, but I would you would need more tests to directly correlate the microbiome to these chemokines or these receptors. So I don't know if it's somehow you can measure those ligands that the cells attach to, or if you can somehow, through um, their blood, uh, directly measure the chemokines that are being released in the body. Mm -hmm. So, if they're able to do that, then I would assume you'd be able to do that to measure those levels with uh, mice that have a microbiome and those that don't. That's the way I would do it. I don't know if that's feasible or not. So, I think they were able to say this is a possibility, but I feel like this story was never tied together nicely in a bow. They never showed, hey, we're also seeing this in antibiotic-treated mice, and so we can say… This is the reason.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a good point of criticism.
1: But, I mean, it's still kind of cool to see that, you know, with a disrupted microbiome, your immune system is a little bit out of whack. And it, I, I guess there's more than one paper that shows that an effective immune system like this has a decrease effect on tumor cells. Mm. So, yeah, our immune system and our gut microbiome are closely connected in more than one way.
0: They're biffles, except when the NK cells try to kill the bacteria, then they're not biffles. That's an assassin.
1: Well, NK cells don't go after bacteria.
0: Oh, right. When they go after the cells that have viruses in them. Right. I mean, the macrophages, they eat the bacteria.
1: Yes. Correct.
0: Correct. I learned something in immunology that one time. Cool, cool, cool. So that is our little article on gut microbiome and oncology. Julie, what exciting new gut microbiome news do you have to bring to us today?
2: Well, I read an article called Diet and Feeding Pattern Modulate Diurnal Dynamics of the Ileal Microbiome and Transcriptome.
0: Oh, I think I read that
2: one. Did you? Yeah. I think it's a Pretty interesting uh, where I do practice intermittent fasting, where I only eat. What's your eating window? My eating window is from 1 p.m. to about 7 p.m. Did you almost call it a feeding window? Well, this article actually calls it, they have what's called TRF, which is the... Time-restricted feeding. Time-restricted feeding, yes. Um, And what they did is they had three different groups of mice and some of those mice ate a normal diet and they were able to eat 24 hours a day. So there's no restrictions. The second group was fed a high fat diet and they were also allowed to eat at any time of the day. And then they had a high fat diet group that was time restricted to eight to 10 hours during dark, which is when uh, mice are active. And what they wanted to do is compare the microbiome specifically in the ileum, which is a little bit different than a lot of the other studies, which are usually in the colon or examining stool. Uh, This is a little bit further up in the chain. The ileum is the end of the small intestine and it connects to the cecum, which is the beginning of the large intestine. And above the ilium is the duodenum. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's right. The duodenum, I think, is the beginning.
1: Yep.
0: Yeah, it's in duodium, ilium, cicle.
1: Duodenum, jejunum, ilium.
0: Oh, yeah, jejunum. Uh, Forgetting jejunum, sorry. Oh, right, right, right. John knows because he he had to dissect a lot of mice.
1: I also took anatomy class a couple times, too.
0: I mean, I
2: did, too, but. (laughs) (laughs) That was a long time ago for me.
1: I also think the ileum is where most of the absorption of nutrients occur in the body too.
2: That is, That is exactly right. And so they think that this is actually a kind of more impactful place to be studying about the gut microbiome. I tried to read the paper about how they did it. It's a little above my head, but the gist of what they found is that a lot of the studies are also taking just a snapshot kind of whenever they can get it and not really developing what they what they're calling more of a movie of it because they're collecting snapshots at the same place but at different times throughout the day so they were trying to study the, the timing effect and you know our bodies have a, a natural rhythm to them and a lot of times our eating habits and our sleeping habits and our Doom scrolling the news habits all affect and t v habits t v all of it uh affects those rhythms and are sitting in front of screens for working habits, yep, or mindlessly snacking on all kinds of stuff while we're doing that without even realizing it, so oh, that one I can't relate to, I never mindlessly eat mm
1: mhm, <laughs> sure. <laughs>
2: It has got now that my my office is upstairs, away from the kitchen, so I have to like get up and go all the way downstairs and go to the kitchen. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's the best have food. diet tactic. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I think um, what I learned from from reading this article anyway is that there is a big validation that the intermittent fasting is a better way to eat. I haven't personally seen a lot of results from it, but I'm working on, you know, some other stuff as well, but I do think that restricting your diet and what they found with the, with the mice is that the mice who were on a high-fat diet and they were allowed to eat whenever they wanted ended up eating of course way more calories and they became obese. So what they found is that for the for the mice that were on the you know, sort of a regular diet and access to food 24 hours a day, things could stay pretty much normal, but the mice that had the high fat diet and were allowed to eat whenever they wanted gained weight. And they, what they found is that the gut needs those cycles. It needs to have those cycles of being full and being empty so that it it can go through its cycles and keep your uh, circadian clock. Working well, in that that regulation also controls the glucose and cholesterol and fatty acid, uh, which we know are a big part of our metabolic health. And as we heard from John, that metabolic health is going to affect everything from how we fight off cancer to uh, C diff to all you know kinds of other areas. So I thought it was a uh, the article is, goes into a lot of detail about how they did the study. And, and obviously I don't know a whole lot about that, but I thought the overall message of that, we really do need to be on some sort of clock for our eating, I think is, is important and something that they're going to continue to study and uh, hopefully let us non-scientists know kind of what the best course of action for us to keep ourselves as healthy as possible.
0: Not that anyone ever actually wants to follow anything that keeps us healthy as possible because wine and cookies and popcorn and pizza. And ice cream. Oh my God, and ice cream. So did they pull out any specific microbial species or genre or phylum even that they saw shift in the different three mice cohorts?
2: Uh, they did. And I read sort of two articles. One is sort of, and for those of you who are not sciencey, Um, When you look up subjects, you can kind of get these watered down versions, which are good for me because those I can understand very well. Um, And it usually has a link out to the more meaty version of the article. And it it does go into and they did talk about specific bacteria that they could easily monitor throughout the day. So they did do that, and I, but I wouldn't be able to really list those off for you. But the article does have all of those details. And we will link that in the show
0: notes. And we might write a blog post about it. I'll put more details in that. And you can find that at microbials.com. Along with all the other information you probably didn't know you wanted to know about microbes. I and mean, if there's information you wanted to know and it's not there, let me know. Because I love writing blog posts.
2: As I look at the article here, they do talk about lactococcus, lactobacillus, and which is in your yogurt. Yeah, and staphylococcus are some of the ones that they uh, were kind of monitoring while they were doing the study. Staphylococcus in your gut—that was one of the ones they were monitoring. Staphylococcus. Yep. Yeah.
1: Okay. Did they like say that these were mice that were colonized with human microbes, or are they just like naturally occurring mice? Like they had their own like natural microbiome.
2: I was not able to understand that from what I was reading. So for people that don't know what that is, John, you want to explain
0: a little bit about germ-free, humanized, and natural?
1: Yeah. So microbiome research is really hard because you're dealing with potentially thousands of different species, hundreds of thousands of different species. And mice is a model for humans. It's usually a stepping stone in research, but they don't have the same microbes we do. If you try to implant human microbes in mice, they're not going to grow in mice. They're just going to like pass through because their natural gut floor is going to kick anything out.
0: Because they're better adapted to the mice-mouse environment. Right. So the human stuff is all foreign and it's just going to flow right out of the mouse. Right. So we developed a new way to sort of humanize the mice.
1: Yeah. So we developed a way where we can breed mice that are germ-free. that They they don't have any microbes whatsoever in or on them. And then human microbes are introduced to them. And then we can start building this model of whatever research is being done with the human gut microbiome. You can do fecal transplants. You can do a defined community. And they'll stay in the mice. And then you can...
0: Until you kill them. Yeah. Many mice get killed in gut microbiome research.
1: Yes. But that way we're able to... Kind of indirectly studied the human gut. This week's episode of the Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Validate your workflow with Zymobiomics Gut Microbiome Standard. An accurately quantified microbial community mimicking the human gut microbiome. Zymo's complete microbiome solutions have optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. You can find out more by visiting their website, zymoresearch.com. But I'm kind of hoping that they're swi- they're going to switch over to the, what is it, the organoid chips?
0: Yeah, I think they're coming out with a lot of really cool technology that might, I don't think it's going to be very quickly that will phase out mice work. I think mouse work is here to stay for quite some time. But there are a lot of systems out there that people are trying to develop that will better mimic human microbiomes. In more of a machine or more of a um, chip focused, as opposed to using a live organism. So that way you can kind of reuse it again and again and it mimics what you want more closely to the host that you want without necessarily having to go through the expense and the killing of a ton of mice.
1: Yeah. And these chips actually have human cells which develop into this like premature intestines. And then you can colonize that with microbes and to experiments that way
0: yeah and it's on a really small scale so it's really space efficient as well whereas mice take up a ton of space and require a lot of resources yeah so maybe we'll do i mean we probably should have done that part of the gut microbiome stuff but i guess we'll just have to wait until we wrap back around um come back in three years maybe we'll have something like that because we got a lot of other topics i want to cover
1: so what stories do you have for us
0: Okay, so my story is actually really close to what Julie just discussed with the three different cohorts of mice. So my story was called Oral Administration of Blausia Wexlerae, Ameliorates Obesity and Type 2 Diabetes via Metabolic Remodeling of the Gut Microbiome. This paper was published less than a month ago. I think it was mid-August it was published in Nature Communications. No big deal, but just one of the best journals, like, ever. Great! It has twenty-seven authors.
1: That's huge.
0: It almost has more authors than how old I am.
1: <laughs> wow. Where where does it come from? One institution.
0: Oh, it comes from Osaka and Japan. Oh, okay. So I'm not going to list all the authors, although they probably all deserve a lot of credit because I'm sure this was a ton of work. But I will name just the first author and the correspondent author, who is Koji Hosomi and Jun Kunisawa, uh, respectively. So this paper comes from the great island of Japan, uh, more specifically, the Laboratory of Vaccine Materials Center for Vaccine and Adjuvant Research, National Institutes of Biomedical Innovation, Health and Nutrition in Osaka.
1: It's way too long of an institution name.
0: Yeah, I think there were like a couple other departments that were also like sort of related to this. So I just named the one of the first author and then the corresponding author. So let's talk a little bit about why they did what they did. I think everyone here probably knows someone or has heard of type 2 diabetes and obesity being sort of like a problem in the world. Lots of people are either facing type 2 diabetes or obesity or at least know someone themselves. And if you don't know anyone who has any of those two, do you have friends? Serious question. Or family. Or family. <laughs> because that it does kind of uh, influence the majority of people I know.
1: I will also say that they're not necessarily paired together.
0: No, no, they're definitely not the same. They're two separate diseases. Obesity is considered a disease, I believe so. Um, they're both considered different parts of a global epidemic. They both occur. So, type two diabetes is the one you're not born with, but you get later. You what is it called? Adult onset diabetes. Yep, is the other name for type two diabetes. And then obesity is anytime your BMI I think is above twenty five.
1: I can't remember anymore.
0: BMI stupid. So it doesn't even matter. You do you. But anyway, so your genes, nutrition, and other environmental factors, like your gut microbiome, can all contribute to your risk in developing both obesity and type 2 diabetes. And top of that, your geographical location and cultural food habits will also affect your gut microbiome. And what I thought was really interesting with this study is often when I read about gut microbiome and obesity, it's always Western diets. It's always focused on Europeans, on Americans. Um, And let's face it, we have a pretty big epidemic here, so it's worth studying. But this one took place in Japan, which we're often hearing about the Japanese lifestyle Uh, They had the longest lifespan, I, I think, of anybody in the world. If not the longest, they're really up there, like probably in the top three. We also know that Japanese, the Japanese culturally has much smaller food portions than we do in Western world. And they eat a very different diet than we typically think about in America and Europe. And this usually means they have lower BMIs. So this is sort of an interesting cohort to look at obesity and type 2 diabetes, because historically, we don't see it there. And generally, these two diseases are not associated with uh, Japan. And when people have done in the past microbial studies on Japanese and comparing to the Western diet, their Western counterparts, they found that the Japanese people often had a greater abundance of bifidobacterium and bluatia, which are often associated with healthy gut microbiomes um, compared to their Western
1: counterparts.
0: So the other thing that I thought was really cool about this paper, and it's not surprising because of the nature communications, you can't get in nature unless you do a lot of work and up 27 authors. So they did experiments that included both a human cohort, and then they had experiments, or I guess they had an observational study, I should say, in humans, as well as experiments done in mice, as well as lab experiments, so outside of hosts completely. They looked at 16s RNA, which is what we the gene that we look at when we're establishing the microbiome composition. So if you've ever heard 16S sequencing or amplicon sequencing or amplicon metagenomics, these are all sort of synonymous. um, And that's what they did in the study to understand the microbial composition. But they didn't stop there with their experiments. They had uh, figures, they had experiments that involved culturing microbes for experiments, they had glucose tolerance testing, they had histological analysis, they had flow cytometry, they had staining, they had microscopy, they had QPCR, they had LCMS, which stands for liquid chromatography with mass chromatography. they had HPLC, which is high performance liquid chromatography. Yeah. And so many others. These are really the ones that I felt comfortable with saying on a podcast, the ones that I knew how to say, which I didn't even know how to say all of them. Um, So I just throw this out there to kind of show you that this took a ton of time. And these 27 people put so much effort and had to have so many skills in order to publish this paper, and I'm gonna talk about it for maybe 10 minutes, and it really is not doing it justice at all. Um, so I just wanna, you know, give a little gratitude to all of the authors on this paper and all the work and hardship that they had to put in to publish this paper. Okay. Whew. Gratitude takes my breath away. <laughs> <laughs> Get so excited. So amped up. Anyways, let's talk about the observational study of the Japanese cohort. So they had 217 people, a lot of people, 45 of them had type 2 diabetes. Not a great proportion, but again, we're dealing with a land that doesn't have a lot of a high prevalence of type 2 diabetes, but they found 45 people that had type 2 diabetes and compared them to the 217 others. They looked at correlations between gut bacteria and BMI or type 2 diabetes. In addition to bleuatia, they found that the fecal bacterium and Butyricoccus to be correlated with healthier BMIs and to not having type 2 diabetes. So these were kind of the first two microbes that they pulled out as potentially um, being something to look at and study further in their mice cohorts. So Bluatia wexillariae was the dominant Bluatia species that they found in this correlation, but they also found other species within the Bluatia genus. They found Bluatia glucosaria, Sterococcus, and other species uh, as also being pretty prevalent and dominant within gut microbiomes, not being associated with high BMIs or type 2 diabetes. Everyone with me so far? Yep. Okay, so now that they have kind of figured out these are the two microbes or this is the microbe, Luisia is the microbe that we want to look at. So they wanted to test it. You can't test in humans very well. So they turned to the mouse uh, model as a way to look at this. And very similar to what Julie just explained, they had three different cohorts of mice, Uh, They had those that were quote-unquote on a normal diet. They had those that were on a high-fat diet and mice that were on a high-fat diet that were also orally given bleuatia three times a week. So in Julie's paper, we just heard that they had a high fat diet plus restricted time restriction feeding. Um, Now we're in, instead of doing a timed window of feeding, we're saying, okay, we're going to add this additional microbe that we suspect is um, negatively correlated with high BMI and type 2 diabetes. Okay. So for my experimental design nerds out there, which I am one, so if you are, welcome to the group. I'm with you, I hear you. They use five mice uh, in the cohort with three independent experiments. What they clearly show, and I thought this was really cool, and this is what I always love about nature papers, Mm, maybe not every nature papers, but just the quality of the figures, it's very easy to read it like a picture book, which is how I read every single scientific paper, like a picture book. (laughs) And if you don't have good pictures, I'm not reading your paper. And that's just the way I am.
1: Mm, nature has high standards.
0: They have high standards. They make great picture books, and I love them for it. So, what they clearly show in their awesome uh, little picture book, which was a little grotesque as well, because it involved dissecting mice and um, having mice in like a mice mouse autopsy, where they fully showed uh, the exposed belly, the intestines, and the Oedipus tissue, which Oedipus is just like a word for fat. So they have a line graph showing the average body weights of the three groups. Unsurprisingly, the high fat diet. No other additive. So, Unsurprisingly, the high-fat diet had the highest of the body weights, and the normal diet, the quote-unquote normal diet, had the lowest of the body weights. But what you can see, and they show this in three different ways. So they show the line graph, they show pictures of the mice, and then they show a picture of the mice being dissected. And what you see is that when you have the high-fat diet plus the spluatia species, the mouse is not as fat as the, the mice on high-fat diet. So that if the high-fat diet is like twice as big as the normal mouse, the high-fat diet plus fluatia was in between. It was in between the normal diet and the high-fat diet. And then they showed this when they cut open the mice. They looked at the Oedipus tissue that was on top of the abdomen. And they show, you can see looking at the pictures, um, but they clearly show that the Oedipus tissue in the high-fat diet is a lot. And it doesn't look as healthy. You can see the coloring is much different in these mice than the coloring of the normal mice. But when you add Bluestia, you have a significantly lower amount of Oedipus tissue. So I thought that was kind of cool. They had these three different ways to kind of show to you, improve to you, and and sort of have these different pictures and different ways of saying, yeah, this is. This seems like it's doing something from a very bird's eye view, if you will. So then they looked at insulin and glucose response. So they're narrowing more into the actual function that they believe Luatia might be impacting. Insulin and glucose are obviously very much connected to type 2 diabetes and to obesity. And so they wanted to look at how insulin levels and how glucose response change when you add Luatia. They saw the same trend. So when you have Luatia with a high-fat diet, it's going to be overall better than what you have with just a high-fat diet, but never as good as the normal diet. And then they had these beautiful immunohistologic images, which I probably don't understand enough to really share with you, but if I was to describe them, they were basically like Jackson Pollock meets a rave. It was just like these really bright colors of paint splattered all over place. I absolutely loved them. They were pretty cool. But not only are these works of art, in my opinion, and I hope you think so, too, it's also science. And the science is showing an increase in inflammation and immune cells in our poor mice that were subjected to just a high-fat diet. And the inflammation was lowered in our mice that had a high-fat diet plus Bluatia.
1: I forget. Is this just one species of Bluatia or several species?
0: Yeah, so they specifically were looking at Bluatia wexillerae is the one that they they did with all of this. So then they wanted to ask. So they kind of can say, okay, the mice, when you give them Ploetia, they are a little skinnier, their overall BMI's are lower, their Oedipus tissue is less, their glucose response is better, and their insulin response is better than just mice with high fat diet. But they narrowed it in down just a little bit further. And they wanted to say, how is Ploetia changing the metabolism? Specifically, they wanted to say how it was changing the amino acid metabolism. And amino acids are...
1: They're the building blocks of protein.
0: True that. So proteins are essential for breaking down food, growing, repairing muscles, and for most body functions. If you're checking your macros, proteins is one of your macros that you're often checking. Um, Sometimes you can get amino acid or branch chain amino acids. If we're really into the fitness scene, you might have those kinds of drinks. So that's sort of what we're talking about. So amino acids can be broken down in three different categories. The first being essential, the second being non-essential, and the third being conditional. So there are nine essential amino acids. They are called essential because you cannot make them yourselves. So these are particularly amino acids that are essential for you to get from your diet, from the food that you're consuming. Many of them you don't really have to track because a lot of diets will include most of the nine essential amino acids. However, if you're vegan or vegetarian, there are certain amino acids that become a little bit more important to track as your diets likely are not getting all of the amino acids without augmenting or specifically searching for foods in those diets that you can find those amino acids in.
1: Right, if you eat like meat, that has all the essential amino acids in those proteins, but plants, when they make their proteins, they don't always make them with all the essential amino acids.
0: Well, it's not essential to them.
1: Well, yeah, so then you have to eat different varieties of vegetables to get those nine essential amino acids.
0: hmm yeah. All right, so with Bloatia waxylure, researchers found an increase in three specific amino acids, including S-adenosylomethanine, acetylcholine, and alonothine. They also saw shifts in carbohydrate metabolism in a whole slew of different carbohydrates that I didn't list here, and a change in the overall bacterial composition of the gut. In particular... Mice that had the high-fat diet with bluatia waxylurae were also associated with having acromantia and varicomicrobia compared to microbes that just had a high-fat diet. And John, can you tell us about acromantia?
1: It's uh, one of the biggest uh, studied bugs out there for microbiome research. Did you just
2: say bugs? Microbes. You take that back, sir.
1: Is said microbes. Mm, yeah. And... No, I'm trying to remember exactly why they're studying. I know they make some short-chain fatty acids, which are beneficial to us.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they also found that short-chain fatty acids were changed in their high-fat diets with Bloatia Wexlerae. So I think it's really interesting that the study that came out, it was a very nice, uh, pretty picture story, for sure. Based on this research on a Japanese cohort, they definitely found that the genus Bluatia, when more specifically Bluatia wexlerae, was inversely correlated with obesity and type 2 diabetes. And this is a really positive step into helping reveal new opportunities and therapeutics, perhaps live therapeutic approaches for metabolic disorders like type 2 diabetes in the future. Now, it's always good to just remind people and say, you know, mice are not humans. Um, if you think you're a mouse you're not. Um, There's a lot of differences between their gut microbiomes and their systems and our systems. And so often we can find these things in mice models and they can be really exciting. Um, But you always got to take things with a little bit of grain of salt because it may not transfer over into humans and it may not transfer over into all humans. Um, Because if there's one thing that we've learned from COVID-19 is that everyone responds a little bit differently. Everyone had different symptoms of COVID-19 you got better at different times or you didn't get it when other people did, everyone is a little bit different. And yeah, so we'll see. It's, I mean, it's an exciting avenue. I love gut microbiome. I think it's why I got into the microbiome, but there's also a lot we still do
2: not know. I think another thing to note is that you heard me say the very uh, sciencey article that I read was the diet and feeding pattern modulate diurnal dynamics of the ileal microbiome and transcriptome but the watered down version that I got when, you know, when I did a Google search, kind of changed that title to a rhythmic small intestinal microbiome prevents obesity and type two diabetes, which is probably a little bit strong for what the actual study was. So I think, you know, when people write things, they're looking for you know clickbait and and things that people will read. But I think we have to kind of read the whole thing and not necessarily just those titles. Because I think that um, you know obviously they found a correlation between the cyclical eating and, and different uh, ways that that can affect that you know glucose and cholesterol and fatty acid control. But does it prevent? Uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes, I think that's a, a little bit of a strong summary of that. So I think that's kind of an important thing to note also. Oh, 100%.
1: Correlation does not equal causation.
2: And science is exact,
0: but it's not absolute. Right.
1: So I wonder why they didn't do like a high sugar diet group. Because, yeah, this was high fat for like obesity, but like I would think a high sugar You would see higher instances of type 2 diabetes with a high-sugar diet or a high-fat, high-sugar group as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if anything in the mouse models were trying to mimic type 2 diabetes or if they're just focusing more on the obesity aspect of the question. Do you know what the model is for diabetes? They must have mice that...
1: Yeah, they have diabetic mice. Yeah, I don't Uh think they... I don't know if they use I don't either. know if it's type 1 or type 2. I mean,
0: likely it's type 1.
1: Maybe, yeah. Because it, it's
0: probably a gene thing, right, with the mice?
1: Probably. And when we were at UCR, there was like a diabetic mouse model that some lab used to look at uh, wounds and how they healed over time and the microbiome of the wound. But mouse models, they're not always exact.
0: Yep. But they do help us get a little bit closer to understanding the unseen world. Yep. So we'll use them for now, but also hope that in the future we can get everything on a chip because that'd be super cool. So futuristic. Well, Microbial Nation, that's the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, please share this episode with a friend, but also tell them that we are all done with the gut microbiome. So they want to learn more about the gut microbiome, we have so many other episodes in our... Back catalog that they can listen to. But if you have friends that love Star Wars, love Star Trek, love that movie with What's His Face growing the potatoes on Mars with his own fecal, then come back for our next season in Astro Microbiology. We're going to get some NASA kids up in here. We're going to talk about movies. We're definitely going to have some weird Star Wars and Star Trek moments. And tie them into microbes because that's what we do here. And I'm so excited to dive into this with John and Julie and all of you lovely people listening.
1: We're gonna be able to get more out of Star Trek and microbes. I feel like they did a better job than Star Wars, but.
0: John, we literally have like seven blog posts about Star Wars and microbes. Yeah. We can make anything connected to microbes, and I can connect Star Wars to anything. <laughs>
2: And I just want to say it makes a mother so proud that you're so into Star Wars and Star Trek. Let your nerd flag fly.
1: And don't forget, people, you can also find us on Twitter at Microbigals or Facebook by searching Microbigals. And we also have a blog where you can check out all the microbial stuff you want by going to Microbigals.com.
0: Yeah, we're the lovely teachers at the Society of Symbiont. We'll try to train you to be a better symbiont for the Earth, the planet, and everyone around it. So, without further ado, we hope you guys enjoyed the gut microbiome little season that we had, and we'll see you in space. Bye!
1: Bye!